with American Independence Day rapidly approaching and the heat of the summer bearing down on an already overstretched water and energy grid, thoughts of breaking away tempt the soul. With the breakdown of public infrastructure in the East Coast with a colonial pipeline, an official policy of rolling electricity blackouts in California spreading to the Pacific Northwest, however, escape no longer seems an option. Tonight we debate these issues, along with the state of the housing market, and a brief movie review to round out the evening's discussion. Let freedom ring. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hi, welcome to the 20th century. We don't have any prep, uh, and it's been hot as balls across the United States entirely and uncomfortable in other parts that aren't hot. So we're here. We have a full house. I've been dying, man. I had had this, like, fever dream the other night because I don't have any AC, and I live in a cold place. So this is unusual. And what that means is it's very difficult to cool off my place. And and I didn't even own a fan. I had no reason to own a fan. And and I couldn't buy a fan. There were no fans that you could buy with money. And eventually I talked to somebody I knew and, you know, did a trade, got a fan. And I had to choose. We don't have fans for money. You no, gotta no, no, no. have you something don't buy to bring to the money. table. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it is. This is this is the new America. Welcome to it. Like supply chain shot. But anyways, I had to choose between basically like death by mosquitoes or death by. Fire. And previously, I had chosen death by fire, but now I had a choice, so I, I took it and went with death by mosquito. And I had this, I had the strangest fucking dream, like really strange shit. So in, in the middle of delirium fever dreams, I had this vision that it was raining. Like it was just glorious rain, wet the dry forests and hopefully preventing our actual extinction by fire. And I woke up sometime in the morning early in heat exhaustion covered in like mosquito bites which is i guess typical but this was way worse and anyway i got on my deck and it starts fucking raining and it rains for exactly four minutes like it just, and then gone it was it was a strange like my plants were were dying and like there wasn't much i could do and it it was just it was a moment of i don't know it, it was surreal to say the least 
but that's uh, that, that's what I've had. The, the God smiled that's, upon that's you. Crap. Yeah, occasionally they do. Nick, uh, my my grandparents had a cabin, uh, and I I never. I didn't know them when they had these dogs, which I never met, but uh, they told me stories about how they'd sleep under the house, under the cabin when it was too hot. And I was wondering for you if, uh, if there's maybe like an access hole or yeah, like a shingle you could you could pry off under the crawl space. Well, no, with, and... what they, uh, yeah, well, what dogs do, I, I mean, I, yeah, I fell asleep on my porch at one point, but what, uh, what dogs do is they dig and they dig where the ground colder and then they sit there and try to sleep until their body heat warms it up and then they dig deeper or another hole and this repeats ad infinitum well, and, smart yeah in desert survival situations they they do recommend digging that is that is the first course of shelter There's is to never get a bad under. time to dig if you're hot, if you're cold, if you're dry, if you're wet, just keep digging. Eventually, things will change. Yeah, keep digging and your problems will be solved. That's why I always say, if you're in a hole, keep digging. Never stop until you can't see daylight anymore. But what if the sun comes up? It's, it's legitimately good advice. I mean, keep digging, dude. Well, how would you? Right. It's a recursive. Yeah. It's not a recursive. I mean, it's like there's a there's a termination condition where, like, you can't see daylight. So you fall asleep, you wake up, you dig some more, etc. And eventually, you know, you're, you're fine. You're just a troll at that point. <laughs> or I guess, like, more of a dwarf. Not so much a troll. Did, did, did anything happen in... Uh... In America, that the East Coast is potentially going to be seeing. We're recording this around the Fourth of July weekend, and and the East Coast, I guess, is going to have gas shortages. Get read about this. Know about this again? Yeah, I mean, New York City shut down their. They shut down two nuclear plants. I guess not New York City, but New York State. They shut down Indian Point and the other one. Why? And now a surprise. Like, well, yes, because uh, global warming. Uh huh. The plan. So, in a lot of these, it's it's a little complicated, and, and it goes state by state. So, one of the kind of underpinnings of this effort, uh, especially in New York State, but in other places on the Eastern Seaboard has to do with um, at some point all these state governments came together and said or not came some of them came together but they all said you know we have these goals we want to hit by this year 2040 2050 2055 2060 you know whatever and the the goals vary state by state so new york state has for a long time uh, most you know particularly under the reign of cuomo um, but even outside of him and, and even before him, there's been this push to by 20 around 2040, 2045, I think, uh, have some percentage of state uh, electricity generation come from hydro, 
some percentage of it come from nuclear, some percentage of it come you, from you other You can't renewables. do hydro anymore. It kills the uh, it kills the fish and the turtles. Well, okay, so whatever. Like they've they've had all these plans, and the interesting thing is that um, depending on the state you're in, like in Virginia, it's a little different. In, in you know places like South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, um, the energy future energy portfolio is looks different. What you do see across the board is a lack of investment into pipeline infrastructure, a real lack of investment into new fuel delivery systems, a lack of investment into new turbines. So the underpinning of the electrical generation uh, across the eastern seaboard is is very aged and not a lot of it's being improved. Um, and there are constantly new plans uh, or plans that have been in the works for a while, again, varies by state, New York in particular, I think, put on hold or killed uh, the Astoria power plant project. Um, there was a there was a, an additional power plant project they uh, they axed in New York. I know there was at least one in um, in what was it, uh, North Carolina, if I remember correctly, somewhere in eastern or no, I'm sorry, western North Carolina. So. A lot of these states have hit the, you know, one of the things they're doing is they've, they've hit these targets that they want to achieve of our energy portfolio looks like this by this date. And in order to accomplish that on this timeline, we have to either remove certain pieces of the energy infrastructure or we have to rapidly shift towards a different source of energy. Um, basically, across the board, it's failing. It's just it's totally failing. Uh, I think Colonial was interesting um, for a lot of reasons. If you actually, I don't know, I can't remember if we talked about this, but uh, Colonial has been on an acquisition spree across the Eastern Seaboard uh, for the last four decades, uh, three, three, four decades. Uh, it's basically destroyed all of its local competition, and it's created its own supply chain effectively, and. Um, this has meant that all these states have sort of given away their responsibility to their citizens uh, to effectively manage their own energy infrastructure, and they've passed it on to you know trans-state uh, energy providers and uh, and fuel providers and and service providers uh, who have their own agenda, have their own problems. Um, so I don't know if we're going to hit a like a gas problem on the east coast i think that uh in general it would appear that you know gas along with everything else is going up in price but that's not i think has more to do with some other underlying factors that also has to do with general inflation in the economy yeah i mean so, <clears throat> so we you know i don't the, know if there'll be a shortage i think that it'll be what has already been going on and it, it's national it's going on across the country which is, uh, you know, the staples of life are all increasing in price. Uh, food, fuel, housing uh, are, are the primary three, I would say. And they're, they've all gone up tremendously. Yeah, I mean, you're, I the guess reason the why natural gas is, the reason why natural gas is favored for American energy production, really everywhere energy production, is because gas turbines can be spun up really, really fast. Yeah. So, like, if you have a nuclear power plant or a coal power plant, especially, like, 
if you start up a grill, you know how it kind of takes a while for the charcoal to light and for everything to kind of get going before you can actually put your meat on? The same thing is true of a coal power plant. It's basically just like your 4th of July grill, except for it's got some water pipes and some turbines hooked up to it. Gas, it's exactly like your gas grill. You just turn on the knob and it starts spraying out BTUs. So it's fantastic for dealing with uh, the the sort of peak load or variable loads where, you know, at night the AC isn't running as hot. Uh, people aren't necessarily uh, running their factories at night versus like, you know, high noon, 4 p.m. in the evening. Like you've got everybody's electric cars charging in the parking lot. You've got your factory still on their second shift, you've got everybody running their AC full blast, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one of the reasons why T Boone Pickens uh, was, uh, was, is, I'm not really sure if he's still alive. He was I think he's very around. much in favor. Yeah, yeah. Around is kind of relative once you get to a certain age. That's, that's kind of a different thing. Back in the day, he had a huge push towards getting rid of all, all these dirty, cold-fired power plants for to invest heavily in renewable energy. Yeah. Because, of course, the the backup capacity, when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, because you're in the middle of just that stank Texas heat wave where the air just sits with the humidity if you want the AC at that point, you've got to fire up your natural gas powered uh, power plants. And that was what he was heavily, heavily invested in was the natural gas uh, ecosystem. And all these things are like heavily complementary, especially once you start getting into the possibility of actual, you know, it, if you take these people at their word, which you definitely should not, but all these people will talk about, oh, the climate costs of X, Y, and Z, the, the social costs of the power of the salmon, of the dams, and the water, we got a supply of the... Like, they're all into systems analysis until it actually results in an actionable solution. So you can totally plan for, like, well... Well, the solution our, is deindustrialization. Well, I mean, that's a solution. But you could also say that, like, okay, well, we have this amount of, like, baseline demand. We know that the power demand will never dip below this level. It's like running all the ambient water heaters and night lights on a crisp November day. Like, you will never get lower than this amount. So we run that off of coal because it's cheap as fuck there's social benefits to running coal extraction and you just plan to absorb that amount of carbon like pick your mechanism you can do mechanical sequestration you can just say we're going to plant this amount of trees whatever pick your poison but that's like a very cheap stable baseline demand you have uh, sort of supplementary, like, well, it's nice because at the same time that you're air conditioning, the sun is also shining, so you can run some amount off of solar. The same thing for wind. And then all of your threshold of, like, well, okay, this is 
well and good, but we have to actually meet this amount of demand. That sort of on-demand uh, stuff is caught via uh, natural gas. Like you could optimize this entire system with an eye towards like my evil carbon, but that's not the goal. Like the goal isn't actually to optimize the system. The goal is not to have an actual model of industrial production or the social benefit and cost of energy that you can plan around. The goal is just like, well, I don't like you. So fuck you. No electricity, which is more and more what we're seeing. Like the amount of schadenfreude over the Texas uh, power grid situation, which was a legitimate, like, you know, you design these systems to be like once in a hundred year durable like they're going to fail once every hundred years when you have a world historical ice storm, like in the middle of the fucking sun belt of Texas. Shit's going to go haywire once every hundred years or so. And that happened, but it's like the gloating, the, oh, global warming. Oh, it feels so smart now. Uh, trans lives matter. Like, my God, like the, you can see that the obvious intent is not like, okay, how do you actually make this thing robust and spend the amount of money that's required to be spent on this thing? It's just like, fuck you, no electricity for you. You don't deserve to live in a first world country, which is why we're slowly getting rid of that whole idea. Well, we're, we're in a soft civil war. I mean, th you see this with uh, the never-ending uh, debates about the infrastructure package that they've been kicking around for probably 20 years now. Uh, and when the Republicans get in, the Democrats uh, stonewall. When the Democrats get in, the Republicans stonewall. Meanwhile, our roads get uh, continually uh, wider with larger holes in the middle of them and, and less asphalt uh, by the second. And uh, we end up... I, I what? Don't, don't they both want to make? Aren't aren't isn't infrastructure code for making money for Jewish billionaires and not building? And don't they agree on that? Well, it's um, it's kind of the opposite, actually. The reason that not. doesn't go through is that it's the one thing that results in like copious amounts of spending on some union guy named Dwight, whose job is like laying asphalt in 120 degree heat. Like, turns out there's a fucking lot of those guys. If you look at seasonal construction employment, and, like, you know, construction is mostly building houses, but even, like, civil construction, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And they tend to hire a lot more people when it's like, here's X million dollars to repair the stretch of road. So, like, that's... It's it's hard to generalize because infrastructure is uh, a universal topic and issue that every municipality, every state, and every federal agency is really touching on some level. Uh, so depending on where you live, obviously your your city council, your your county, your state uh, results may vary. Uh, but when the federal budget infrastructure package gets tossed around. I mean, I remember this very vividly. I remember driving down a road that was in, uh, let's just say, a notoriously uh, left-of-center city, and there was a big placard with uh, Obama's face on it, and it said, you know, thank you for uh, giving us money as part of the uh, recession uh, is, stimulus bill. Is that where bill. the money went? 
Well, it's an example of what they do. They'll they'll give out pork barrel spending to constituencies they want to reward, just like they hand out jobs to people that help during the campaign. I think it's the same pattern. Comcast. Um, so, like, broadband is infrastructure, right? I mean, you like it when your internet is on, right? Internet is a utility. That's how you get your 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 racist podcasts. So here's an enormous amount of money so that you can maintain the private infrastructure of these particular monopoly providers. And maybe if you're feeling particularly civic minded, run out a fiber line to a firehouse. You know what fire stations do with fucking fiber optic cables? Fucking nothing. They don't do jack shit, but you get money to run the fiber optic cable out to this municipal building and it sits there. And it's great. You know, it's like, you know, some some guy got paid good money to run a trencher. Some other guy got paid good money to, you know, place the fiber optic cable gently upon the trench. And a different guy got paid good money to cover it up. So basically, well, this is how you happy. know certain parts of the uh, the upcoming infrastructure package uh, are basically there for fraud or for for grifting or just to you know sort of ingratiate the civil service. Um, one of the as the the broadband thing is interesting because they keep touting that and it doesn't never makes sense to me because I often you know I, I try and think I've I, I believe I've traveled the country fairly well I've uh, been to a multitude of states in the last few years and last different last ten years um, I have never been in a part of the country in the last ten years uh, unless it was deeply deeply uh, remote. Uh, where there was no internet and there was no cell service that was not, you know, somewhat adequate. Like you couldn't, you you can perform. Are you talking games. about me? I'm not talking about you and specifically you live. I don't even think you're in the country, so I you know, I don't know where you are. But I think that most of the country, whenever there's this talk of, well, you know, we have to get broadband to. We have to get high speed internet to these rural communities. It's the digital divide. These these disadvantaged communities, I often think like, well, they already have internet access, so they have alternatives, they have ways of doing that. What you know, what is going on here? But then you know, you, if you actually read well, into what's it, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, they're they're like Comcast. Here's X million dollars to run an additional run of cable to like city hall, this particular library. So then that's, that's when you realize what's, what is really going on here is that it's, it's just sort of regulatory capture at its core of, and contract capture where, you know, the U S government is basically going to take taxpayer money in the forms of tax credits, subsidies, or just direct infusions, uh, to then allow these companies to then permanently capture a market. It's very bizarre, um, and it's not the, the critical infrastructure that you know we often really think is is crucial. You know, you're talking about fire stations. I've definitely seen some actual the fi- actual fire stations. The building looks uh, quite worn, uh, and certainly the roads leading up to and away from the fire station look pretty run down. 
you have manhole covers that aren't even made in the United States. Uh, often they're made in India, you know, with this old cast iron technique. And even then you can already see that they're chipping and they're kind of falling apart. Uh, there's real critical infrastructure problems. There's all kinds of problems in our inland waterway transportation networks. There's all kinds of problems in our electrical grid. There's all kinds of problems across the board. But, um, you know, the the way in which we're going to approach it, I, I think, is very peculiar because it seems to be about ingratiating um, certain interests who have a, a mind for what they think uh, the new infrastructure ought to be. One of the other um, fascinating examples alongside the, you know, kind of odd push for national fiber optic broadband or whatever, however they're billing it, is, um, is this Which would be forward. great if you could actually get it. It, which would be great if you could actually do it properly, which they won't. But, um, you know, what the other thing that's very interesting that they're pushing for is um, 500,000 electric charging stations for electric cars. Now, putting aside like the obvious um, sort of low hanging fruit of, you know, the electrical grid across the United States is under immense strain currently. You have um, residents of uh, major cities on, uh, you know, 3,000 miles apart who are simultaneously being told by their state governments to turn off their AC units. Um, you know, they have this very obvious problem in how exactly are you going to support 500,000 electric charging stations nationally under those kinds of yearly conditions? Don't think it's very doable. I, I have a few the things other, to say on this. And also, like, clearly we need more immigrants. <laughs> That like the the electric car charging thing is such a red herring because if you're talking about electric charging stations, most of those, if you look at the geographic concentration of the country and the average commutes and everything else, approximately everybody driving a car full stop is driving that to someplace at an exponentially decreasing rate to someplace else, maybe to someplace else, if you're feeling super crazy in a Sunday afternoon, it's someplace else, and then home. The range of an electric car is sufficient to encompass those. It's not like that actually gives you any more transit distance. It's just, here's a naked subsidy of X kilowatt hours to the demographic who is buying electric cars, which, you know, as an anti-racist such as myself, I feel obligated to point out is uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, it's not that they're shit libs and that I want them to suffer because of their poor life decisions, but, you know, it's white people. And so, you know, what I said before, but yes, actually. Uh, and that's okay. So... Like, wait, wait. you're not talking so, about popping up electric my, charging my stations in the middle of like a, a 500 mile stretch between like Las Vegas and Pueblo. Mm -hmm. You're talking about like, oh, yeah, the Safeway that that could really use one extra slot that I can't park in. Uh, Nick, Nick, do you want to well, jump in? I, I have a few things as well. Yeah, I just wanted to say, by definition, cars are things by which you can go anywhere. So if that's not true, then it's not a car. 
Yeah, th- there is an obvious logic trap like there. You can drive into hordes of protesters. <laughs> you can, um, you can, you can, you can go anywhere. But if you can't do that, it's not a fucking car. Well, I think it isn't. It it does pair well what you're saying with I think that their their general sort of framework for the future of the United States which is a much more controlled environment where your options for um, economic expansion, your options for daily life choices are severely limited. Um, you know, you can see this all over the place, the, uh, the increasing credentialism amongst many professions, the inability to find uh, easy startup capital for a you know run-of-the-mill business venture, certain, certainly nothing that's hardware-oriented, manufacturing-oriented, sawmill-oriented, anything along those lines. Um, you see this with the push for removing meat from the average person's diet. And you do see this with the push to electrify the transportation network of the United States. And meat is the gasoline of the I, human body. It, well, it's also being it's being paired very curiously with um, these increased calls for a a revitalized effort for national train networks to be revived. Now, the national train that, that's network, a straight up property developer handout. Yeah, there, so there's like, there's the an intention obvious, is not to build trains. There's an obvious scheme here, and you can see by the way how that scheme played out very well in uh, in, in the state of California, um, and it's still playing out. Even though the product is effectively dead, there are still hundreds of contractors who are making money off of it. Um, Going to buy the right of way. But I think that the general idea here, whether or not they're able it to pull it off. It even played out in the 19th century. Well, the, the general idea yeah, here, I mean, whether or not they're able to pull it off, is to permanently limit your, your ability to move from place to place uh, and control it far more effectively. Yes. And you're trapped along a very specific supply chain of electricity electricity that can feed your ability to move this also is going to present an immense problem for any business that uh, wants to conduct itself a peculiar way if, if it uh, has to then start relying upon electrified um, freight rail and electrified trucking networks to move its you know to move its product or to I don't I don't think they're going to electrify the train system anytime soon. D- diesel locomotives are you don't, you don't have just, to. They, they just make like, more with sense the train, yeah. with the train network like electrification is beside the point because you're already on an extremely fixed route you already have defined fueling and maintenance points like if you can transform the entire consumer transit infrastructure writ large into that same paradigm then you have an incredible amount of social control Oh no, I I agree with the the observations. I shared with um, you. You guys remember I posted I shared with you guys the uh, thing of someone affiliate at the World Economic Forum who is writing some some gay like fantasy article about the future in which no one owns anything, like not even their fucking bicycles, and they're like, yeah. oh, we don't own a car, we don't own a house, we don't own an apartment, we don't own anything. We don't, even own, we don't own a refrigerator. There's nothing. It's a loading unit of extracted capital. Well, it's, right. the, yes. rent, it's yeah. the rent here. I like to call it the rent here and insurance economy. 
because it's a very peculiar model. And you, you see this in a lot of the advertising now um, for washing machines, bicycles, access to property, um, access to vehicles, uh, access to materials, access to tools. There's um, there's a lot of uh, you know installment payment plans for just about everything now. There's lots of insurance plans for just about everything now because there's a huge renter economy for everything now. So that that comes with the whole insurance economy on top of the renter economy because you have to get everything insured if you're going to rent it. And I I think the the, the optimal model that they're attempting to do, which is totally demented. Um, but there, there is some kind of, I, you know, Gaussian elimination complex to this, where they're under this belief if they can, if they can adequately, you know, only deploy a resource to you for the amount of time you actually need it, they can sort of somehow solve the energy crisis, they can solve the environmental or pollution crisis, and they can solve the crisis of inequality. Now, like the real question here is who is actually the crisis? Yeah, who who is actually going to be owning all of these assets you are renting? The Jews. It's <laughs> when you look I mean, when you look at this like World Economic <laughs> Forum stuff, it's it's demented in that you know it presents this like world where everyone is happy and healthy and only using what they need. But by no means is it addressing the fact that private ownership is still in play. You just are not going to be the you, one with private ownership. You'll be taking out. You'll be taking out fucking loans to pay rental fees. Yeah, hundred percent. You, call you, already, you already see that. You already see that right now. Smoothing. Yeah, well, you see that right now because there's basically. Um, although I think that there, a lot of these people are being very hyperbolic. There is a very real tail risk of this, um, you know, looming eviction crisis, and nearly every state in the country, along with the federal government now, uh, is participating in this permanent stave off uh, of a of a property market. Uh, sort I of think that's that's a little bit inverted, actually. Well, let, let me so just the, let me just say what I where I think this is going is to what Nick is saying. We're going to have to take out loans to pay your rental fees. I do think that there is a possibility of that to some extent, where if these you know moratoriums start to come off and people are not able to locate liquid sources of capital, I I think that the you know the commercial banking sector will start loaning people money or will start creating basically mortgages to then rent instead of mortgages to own. I think that those sorts of payment plans will definitely be if they're not already on the on sort of the drawing board, uh, they will be in the next six months as a possible well, alternative think, to like, you know, just having everyone be evicted permanently. Yeah, the the rental sector and the interface with the banking sector is is very interesting. Uh I, I don't think that, that the there will be uh it doesn't make any sense to to loan money on a rental basis because it's not money then that's secured by anything. Uh, like uncollateralized money is is really expensive and the demographic that's primarily renting. So there would be no uh, it would just be pure overhead at that point. But like I think that the 
like everybody has to live somewhere, right? You're born short housing. You're born with nothing that you own, nothing to your name. And yet you like have to physically exist somewhere. And it's not a tractable situation. And I don't think that it will actually happen for a third of the country to be simultaneously homeless and a third of the country to be vacant uh, units that aren't rented to anyone. Like that's not quite absurd. Like that's happened in kind of special circumstances. I just don't think that it's going to happen. Well, it will happen. It gives you a lot of leverage to control internal migration flows though. Uh, kind of like, I mean, it, it depends on because like usually it's like, like there has to be an enforcement mechanism right like you have to have it, okay so let me back up in some places like California there are certain segments of the population that have realized shit I don't have to pay rent like <laughs> which is great uh, you know you can't be evicted but you still owe the money so there's still a implicit uh, debt that's being accrued there. You will definitely see that debt being sold. So primarily for cash-constrained uh, small renters, people who are, you know, they own a couple of townhouses somewhere, they own a duplex, that sort of stratus of person. Uh, who like oh my my aunt died and she like she willed me this condo and so now I rent it out not somebody who uh, necessarily like has liquid capital and so like they're on their nth house that they're renting out but the smaller scale people who are not necessarily adversarial or accustomed to adversarial interactions the debts that they're owned by renters who have realized and made a rational calculation that like, well, I can't be evicted. So what's the remedy here? Like, fuck you. I'm not paying. That debt is going to be sold off to the exact same kind of debt collector scumbag that operates at the fringes of the U S economy for, you know, 25, 30 cents on the dollar. And they're going to try to ruthlessly collect that from somebody who, because they're in that situation and not that great with money, probably maybe doesn't necessarily have that amount of liquid uh, funds available. The person who is renting that property out uh, via the rent ear, I guess, uh, they're going to be in a hard spot because these sorts of restrictions are apparently going to continue ad infinitum now that we have my delta variant and so like what will end up happening is that it's still trickling down to the uh the rent or class like you still have an economic burden being imposed upon them because they still owe the money they will be collected on at least something their wages are going to be garnished They'll get default judgments, all the same scumbag uh, behavior that we see. And the lack of cash flow and the debt financed rent or uh, market is going to combine to make sure that 
the class that owns a small amount of this historical source of wealth of American real estate is going to get the cram down and they're going to have to sell out. This is partially a way of kind of dispossessing uh, this minor literal noble class of literally landed aristocracy that's still paying the inflation adjusted uh, property taxes on their California real estate that they were paying in like 1968 or whatever, uh, which is actually hereditary. It's, it's fucking great if you check out Prop 13. But it's a way of making sure that's incredibly, uh, really liquid and valuable real estate is liberated uh, into the jaws of people who control infinite amounts of uh, essentially zero interest rate capital and that they can now take possession of this. They can float it for however long they want because they're plenty collateralized and they can always borrow more money. Zero percent is fucking great. And this is the sort of oligarchalization uh, if that's the correct conjunction uh, of the American economy, where you have the increasing concentration of physical capital into the hands of people who previously only held very cheap nominal capital access. They're seeking to concretize, well, I have this account at the Federal Reserve and I can borrow money at 0%, but it doesn't matter if I can't turn that into anything real, if I can't turn that into something that actually generates a cash flow on the one hand or generates reliable asset appreciation on the other hand because of constrained asset ability availability. So they're doing a gigantic cram down into the real economy and the real estate sector is honestly the, the easiest place to make that play. I think black BlackRock, by the way, is, is a red herring. They actually don't own that much of the American real estate sector. A lot of these places are sort of semi anonymous uh, firms or people that are financed by them. There's like lots of the Wall front, firms are providing front organizations. So what, that are what's their play, in. Hank? What's your take? What's their play? What, what's the, what's the BlackRock play? What's what you, I want your take? Give give. I take. think that a lot of the a lot of a lot of the asset managers like they're not in the business. If you're like a, a BlackRock VP, do you want to be getting phone calls at 3 a.m. because like you're legally obligated to fix somebody's air conditioning because it's 200 degrees out? Like ab- absolutely fucking not. Like you, like no. I'm, I'm a capital allocator. I, I, I operate in a world of pure yeah, imagination. So what you want to be doing is like okay. So there's some like <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be doing, engaging in too many ethnic stereotypes here, but there's there's a guy with a much longer beard who much his job is nose, like you act- might say. Well, no, no, longer beard. He he operates on the ground. He walks around. He doesn't definitely doesn't drive on Saturdays. And his job is making sure that like the rent is paid on time and that he knows the municipal judge personally. So when there's a uh, case of like a landlord not fulfilling his obligations, I mean, he's not even the landlord, even though he's the guy who shows up to collect the rent, et cetera, et cetera. That's the guy in the ground who is essentially the property manager, even if he 
titularly owns the place, et cetera, et cetera. He's provided capital. Again, this like abstracted capital that provides him the ability to own this place, collect rent, engage with sort of the governmental system on the basis that he holds this piece of paper that says, yes, I'm the guy. I'm the HNIC, HJSE. BlackRock's play is like, okay, we're still the paper guys. We're moving around pieces of paper. We're collecting arbitrage on pieces of paper. We're providing capital for this whole thing to go down, but we're not actually the person touching the dirty stuff. Like, it's the exact same thing that they do now. Like, I mean, they have how many, many trillion dollars of assets under management. It's not like they're personally responsible for running a third of, like, General Electric or whatever. They hold the pieces of paper. They hold certificates that say at some point somebody provided this amount of capital to this person and it grew to this amount of capital and we exchanged it for these other pieces of paper. And every way along this um, along the path, we collect 1% and every year we collect a half a percent. And every time we make a profit, we collect 20% and life is good. So I... You know, the the capital availability here is the underlying issue. The fact that somebody can end up collecting effectively uh, infinite free money to fuck with the real economy, not like the sort of administrators along the way, except for to the extent that they perpetuate the system, like BlackRock. Even the guys along the ground, it's like, okay, you know somebody who knows somebody who can get you an extremely cheap loan, and so you can buy this out from this guy who's cash-constrained and make a killing. Like, this is this is how shit goes if you have these massively distortionary macro trends in the system, which is ultimately financed by the fact that you have infinite amounts of fucking free money that's offered on a privileged basis to particular actors in the system. Well, I think that a lot of the BlackRock stuff, we talked about this in the last show, but part of, or not the last show, but one of our previous shows, I brought this up, but I think that two shows one ago. of the more interesting, yeah, two shows ago, one of the more interesting things is that it's not necessarily BlackRock as the, the arch villain here. People are missing that it's it's primarily private equity groups that are the ones who are doing most of the dirty work of real investing into the housing market and are actually taking up houses and really taking land as a collateral asset. Uh, it's also hedge funds too. The danger of BlackRock's involvement with the housing market indirectly is that their ability to sort at this point they have the capability and the, the wherewithal to make or sink companies uh, or markets very rapidly and they can affect change in any way they see fit they openly brag about this in fact uh, i think larry fink is the uh, the hgic over at blackrock and he is very open about his intentions to sort of alter certain markets depending on how they see things. I think that the danger is that BlackRock can then sort of prioritize uh, allocations of shares and certain kinds of index trading and 
all sorts of various techniques that they have and you know all the assets they have towards companies that have a very specific goal in certain kinds of property development, property acquisition, and uh, property maintenance. This is that, something that actually happened recently. This, with, this uh, has with happened. Exxon. This has happened very. This has started to happen recently. And also, I think Blackstone is is another primary is a bigger culprit of of this rather than just BlackRock. Yep. This isn't just all like the, uh, the, uh, the 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 matrix of like you got the, stone the names. Rock, stone. There's rock, another one called and, Rock uh, Rock Point uh, Group. Uh, yes. It, it should yeah, be black, called Black, black Q, Stone, but Blackwater. Black if we just get but, like yeah, you know, like Kabbalah Investing Q. Incorporated. Q. Yeah. Well, I, so, so what? I how that, does this? Is it for for laymen in the audience? So what to the? Is this about them trying to hedge on what happened in two thousand eight and make sure it doesn't happen again? That's definitely I mean, an, an aspect of it. Very little happened in 2008. Like, what happened in well, 2008? Well, some people were caught holding like, a bag. Oh, like, literally 100 people were caught holding a bag for some amount of time. Uh, nobody went to jail. Very few people in that Well, yeah, sector. nobody went to jail, and Fed's Zog paid them out. Yeah. I mean, you had, like, concentrations of social It's not like capital. they have racial memories, like, Cossacks carrying torches. Uh, you know, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> but memory of Cossacks. Is there something they're trying to correct for? Are they, are they correcting for something that happened? Is this is yeah, this I mean, the correction? I think they're just trying to make and money. Like a and like this is something that's they actually want, they want to do happened. more than make money. I mean, like you can you can look at the sort of concentrations of wealth that happened in uh, 1990s Russia, and that's like a a cornerstone case of how do you do the cram down? Like, how do you make sure that I mean, people with preferential access to capital who are able to buy cash flow constrained assets at a discount and then use that to exert a cram down on the the population of the country like that was a not necessarily a test bed i mean it was a just a concrete extraction opportunity that actually happened it wasn't like this is a quote unquote dry run it was it was a very very wet run but it happened and it paved the way and it showed like how do you actually do this in a country that has significant amounts of physical social capital uh not like some third world shithole where it's like okay well do i own the mines okay cool then we're good i own everything of value and a bunch of shit that has negative in this shithole country like, if you can do this in some country that's actually making first world products, uh, then this is demonstrating that these systems of financial oligarchy are actually able to uh, reify in mechanisms of social control, uh, you know, until your ass handed to you a little bit uh, by, uh, you know, St. Vlad or whatever. But 
you know, plenty of those guys are still uh, extremely wealthy as long as they play ball and as long as they uh, sort of contend with the political constraints that the Air Force operate under. I, I think that there's an element, too, in that the, the nature of Wall Street participation in the housing market ha- has changed as a result of 08. Um, and Singh said, you know, if you really look back on it, not a lot happened because a lot was prevented from happening. And to, Nick, to what you're saying, they are clearly trying to prevent anything from happening. But the nature of it has changed dramatically in that, uh, you know, the mortgage-backed security market um, and the way in which Wall Street used to, uh, you know, sort of affect ownership over the housing market has evolved into a more direct ownership rather than a purely financialized uh, sort of instrumental ownership. I think that they what they must have realized at some point was that the, the real issue was not necessarily that there was a, a problem in the housing market. There was a problem in the sort of pricing mechanism and the pricing allocation. And the best way to prevent that from ever going awry again is if you just own the market and you own market conditions. And it doesn't help that many of these banks, you know, they have the capability uh, and a lot of these asset managers, private equity groups and hedge funds, all these different financial firms, they have the capability or they already have, you know, some direct ties to various other elements of the supply chain infrastructure that allow you to have a housing market, the sawmills, the lumber providers, the lumber wholesalers, you know, building contractors, developers, uh, private land engineers, you know, all you know, all these firms, and they all have relationships with banks. And as the numbers of banks continues to decline and banks become consolidated, more and more likely you have clients who uh, will eventually make up an entire regional housing supply chain, if not the national housing supply chain. So I think that what they're, if I had to guess, what they're really trying to do is create a dynamic where they can control the supply and demand through their financial relationships much more easily, and they can effectively control the market mechanisms for the housing market. And this will prevent anything like 08 from ever coming close again, because no longer will there ever be necessarily an overglut of housing. If you can permanently control the dynamics of the housing market down to the lumber mill, well, then there's never going to be a price drop. See, all you have to do is follow very basic econometric models at that stage. So I think that this is a very clear attempt to ensure that they are, you know, generating real revenue on their assets, these actual physical assets that they have now. And that they control the market dynamics that those assets are based in. And those assets continue to appreciate, which allows them to use them as collateral for all kinds of other investments. So I would say that at this point, the housing market, I mean, there's always a chance that this could go horribly awry or they could do something to ensure that it goes awry. I don't you know, pretend to know what really motivates these people. Um, but... I think that the, the dynamic has changed so drastically in the last 13 years, um, and they really did learn their lesson in, you know, having the instrumental or you know, in, the instrument-based ownership wasn't effective enough. 
you needed to have real ownership, you know, like von, yeah. in, the, in the military terms of cash flow. In the military terms of von Clausewitz, uh, you know, boots on the ground wins the war. Well, you can't win the market if you don't own the assets in the market. If you own a financial instrument that owns a piece of that asset or owns the collection of interest on that asset, you you know, we don't have anything. I mean, you know, be realistic here. And it was a realistic wake up call in basic economics. And I think that that is, that's what they've done. And it, it's, you know, it's, again, this is demented and it's, um, it's going to probably cause the country to start to implode socially and politically, but this is clearly what they're attempting to do, is permanently control the nature of the market and, and how you can actually allocate capital. I, I have some numbers well, here. Particularly it, because you can see that. Can, can, I, can I jump in? Go on, Adam. Thank you. Yes. Um, all right, so I think we're we're speculating. I'm not excluding myself from this because, of course, we're the last to know. Um, I'm uh, I'm wanting to just kind of offer some actual, let's call them uh, relatively uh, fact-driven pieces of information. This is from uh, Wolf Street. This was the website that Hans was mentioning a couple shows ago. Uh, we'll, Fantastic we'll, website. Everyone should read it. We'll, we'll call it a, at least a slightly more likely to be closer to the, the primary sources of information than perhaps myself. Uh, but I'll, I'll just say this is actually addressing the, the theory that BlackRock is involved uh, in these purchases. Uh, the article goes on to stipulate that it is not necessarily BlackRock, but there are other companies involved, in the, and it does name names. Blackstone was mentioned. Uh, they were uh, involved in purchasing a company called Home Partners, and this goes to what Hank was saying before about the money managers themselves not necessarily going into the apartments to change light bulbs, of course. But they're, it sounds like they're, they're purchasing companies that do that job. They're effectively real estate management companies. Um, and uh, this other company that I mentioned briefly, Rock Point Group, LLC, uh, they uh, purchased a controlling stake in Conrex, which owns over 10,000 single-family rental houses in the Midwest and the southeastern U.S. Uh, there was a commenter, though, in this article that went on to say, and he's apparently not at liberty to say how he knows this, but in Florida, there was, um, according to him, uh, 20,000 homes purchased by BlackRock. I don't know this, uh, uh, but I have seen a lot of uh, Berkshire Hathaway signs going up uh, in the area that I live in, uh, the, that's the that's, Warren Buffett firm. That's different, guys. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway Realtors is right. like a, a right. real estate brokerage. Right. It, yeah, I agree with it's, that. It's yeah, very I, common I in the Northeast. If you're ever in like a uh, a co- nice coastal town on, in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, you might see on these uh, very picturesque multi-million dollar beach houses and townhomes right on the ocean uh, – <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway Realty or something something like that. What I will say, though, about that is it's it's a higher incidence of those signs than I've seen before. Now, that could be just because I've moved or something. But uh, that is a segment of the market that is doing extremely well. Real estate agents are making a, a very good business, so much so that uh, they're actually having to turn clients down. Uh, I know a few of these people. They're actually uh, quite difficult to work with in this 
current climate as opposed to another uh, periods where they're more than willing to go above and beyond for you. But uh, that that's another, it's a very like, it's sort of akin to a stockbroker and that they make a cut of whatever the sale is, regardless of what the level of the price is. As long as there's a lot of turnover, they do well. And there's a lot of activity, although that has started to decline. Uh, there's more articles on Wolf Street that actually cover that. There seems to be somewhat of a buyer strike going on, uh, even though prices seem to continue to go up. The amount of uh, homes being turned over has gone down recently. Uh, and then before I forget, and, and I'll let you guys uh, continue, uh, this is just going back to what we were talking about with the energy infrastructure earlier. Um, I had heard f- just completely outside of this show, but just in my personal interest in, uh, in the automotive industry, uh, Ford is putting out uh, the uh, Ford Lightning, which is the kind of electric successor to the F-150, which is America's best-selling vehicle. It's the pickup truck that you see everywhere uh, from Ford. Uh, but what's interesting about this, and this is a little bit of a follow-up slash uh, competitor to That's the Cyber one that truck. The, the, the elderly man drove around after insulting the journalist who asked him about the Zionist bombardment of Palestine. Do I have that right? I have no idea, but uh, l- let me just finish. There's a good chance that's my, accurate. And anyway, Wait, this has nothing to do with me? the I, Jews. I didn't, I didn't uh, mean for... to drive away like that. What? Can I finish, guys? Yeah, dude, no. Hans and I are talking about the same thing. Adam, you totally missed that. This we're we're on point. We're all talking about the same thing. So the the uh, uh, the the Biden uh, he this was am I right, Hans? Was it the one he drove? Was it the I have no Biden like, uh, was, was involved you, apparently. I don't know what this yeah. is about. <laughs> it was a it was a pickup truck. That was, it was an wasn't that the Maverick? And I, I I don't know. I, I but there other the whole electric idea. Of, like, let let Adam let Adam finish. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And then you can continue with your <laughs> screaming about the Jews. Um, the, the point I was trying to make was this truck. Okay. It's, it's an interesting piece of engineering. And it also, I think, is a very interesting testament to the socio-political economic state of the country. Uh, what its key feature is, is a very large battery. Uh, like so large that you could literally run off the grid a construction site for several days if you um, if you lose power at your house you can plug the house into the truck and just off battery power alone it could power a normal american house for three to ten days and what that reminds me of is india india was and is still a socio-economic political disaster uh, they speak 50 languages. They have a democracy. Uh, they are always fighting, arguing, pointing fingers at each other, and they can never really get much done compared to countries like China, at least. And they're notorious for having blackouts, uh, brownouts, power outages, uh, failures in other infrastructure, water, sewage, uh, sanitation, things like that. And so what their oligarchic class does uh, is they fly around the city in helicopters and uh, get chauffeurs to drive them through three hours of uh, a 10-mile commute because the infrastructure is that bad. Uh, and 
what's happening in America is not that bad, but it's getting closer to that day by day is in California. They've, they've now sort of made blackouts and brownouts. I actually don't know what the difference is, but they they made power outages a state of policy uh, now that they've got so many people, 37 million plus, and a unreliable uh, public energy utility, at least in Northern California, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, that is not trusted to be able to keep the lights on during the summertime, uh, lest they risk more forest fires. And so this truck is actually specifically, I'm not even like speculating here, this is in their marketing literature, it's being specifically targeted at consumers in California. Unlike the oligarchic class, it is actually reasonably priced, but it's like the middle class is now becoming um, required to generate their own electricity effectively or, or stockpile it because the supply chain of electric power is so unreliable, like third world countries. Uh, and I think that is is a real testament to where this country is going. I mean, you've got these companies, you know, designing these workarounds to this just complete chaotic mess that is our sociology. And that's really the only thing that's allowed to be put forward as a solution, which I don't, I mean, I'm not against that, but I think it's, it's completely lacking and insufficient when we, there are way more obvious solutions, obviously, but that would require political uh, challenges. And I think that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's what I wanted to mention about the power infrastructure thing is it, I thought that was a great example of like what's happening in on the ground is that like people are literally having to just like put, put energy into their bathtub, you know, for a rainy day or something like that, because it's, uh, it's just not something they can trust anymore from the system. And this was never the case, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Anyway, that's all I had to say. And Nick, maybe you're right. I'm definitely confused by this because this was my follow-up question. Well, no, I want to ask you about this because I was curious. The only thing I – so like what I was talking about was – I don't know which model of Ford it was, but the Biden – Yes, he – Biden drove it. Electric pickup truck as he sped off from a journalist who asked him about – okay, so I wasn't – as you said, screaming about the Jew. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what the I was, Jews have I was to do with it, I was confused by this yeah. more than any. Yeah. I don't need it. Well, no, the Jews have to do is that press conference that took place. It was, the whole thing was bizarre. So okay. I, I mean, the, the most yeah, more bizarre maybe. than that was the whole idea of an electric truck because – yeah. I mean, from a marketing perspective, how, how are you going to sell that, man? The people who buy trucks are I not know. people who are sold on the idea of an electric truck. No, I agree. So, I mean, we can, agree. we can I talk agree. about that with the marketing in state, layer. Like, a, like the, the well, Maverick well, is a more yeah, interesting, yeah. like, I, I would totally buy a Maverick. Uh, if I was uh, in the market. Who makes a Maverick? I, I don't know that. We literally uh, buy it's a, the Ford Maverick. Didn't we have uh, the Nikola electric truck startup last year? That yeah, they, <laughs> I think they, some of them have there gone was, out of business. There was a little bit of yeah. fraud there. They they filmed the truck going downhill, but they tilted the camera <laughs> uh, to make it appear that it was oh, under power when it was really just sort of accelerating as per Newton. Oh jeez. Uh, it's a, it's a little bit of a you know a situation. I was. I mean, I'm just. I'm just imagining like 
the next 10 years. How um, does that handle weight? I mean, electricity does well with cars that if right. you want high torque on a light car. You can go fast, fast, fast like Sonic. But how so, the fuck you gonna haul yeah, shit? Like a hybrid, a hybrid well, powertrain. Like Nick, hybrid Nick is F- correct. The, the towing capacity of electrics suck. Uh, this is why they put such a huge battery in this thing, and that that's what's kind of interesting about it. But yeah, that's always been the yeah, issue. Is the, there's a there's a distinction between like torque, power, and uh, range. And, well, <laughs> torque, power, energy. So the the hybrid powertrains make a fucking lot of sense actually in truck format because if you're going at like six miles an hour because you're stuck in city traffic, mm-hmm. you can actually do a lot better by uh, a high torque electric battery that's replenished uh, with some regularity at maximum efficiency by a gas engine. The same thing if you're especially actually if you're towing. You can do a lot better acceleration if you have a high output electric motor with high torque uh, that can be efficiently replenished. Whereas, like, I mean, the gas engine is maximally efficient at one particular set of RPMs. And that's where you get the maximum power output. You get the maximum torque at a slightly different RPM, but usually they're in similar ranges. If you're not operating at that RPM, then you're not doing maximum power. So, like, you can be, like, trundling around at, like, 10 miles per hour, and your gas engine, like, ideally, you would want that to be, like, operating at 4,000 RPM or whatever, dumping energy into something that could easily relay that back, and just doing, like, a bursty, like, first you run the thing, then we're completely off. Then we're running at maximum efficiency. Then we're completely off. A hybrid powertrain enables that. Uh, they're just like you know more complex, right? Which is unfortunate. Uh, if you're running entirely electric and you just have like an infinite battery, then you can be actually pretty super efficient. It's just the power capacity, which is to say, like the energy capacity of the batteries. Uh, hasn't really been there thus far mm-hmm. to enable like actually efficient like you know the maximally efficient engine would be like a five gigawatt power plant over yonder <laughs> that's making power for like much cheaper than you can make it with your like fucking like two liter engine underneath you so ideally you'd be doing the same thing writ large you'd be like running like x gigawatts over yonder and then off and then running x gigawatts and off which you can replicate by running it all the fucking time and charging and discharging and charging and discharging but the battery capacity versus the weight versus the trade-off in the weight versus uh the amount of energy that you actually need to keep on hand in order to move the weight of the batteries there's an optimization problem there and it's not like an obviously stupid like thing to try to optimize for you can optimize for it over a particular uh usage pattern it seems like they've done like an okay uh job Mm -hmm. but you know like a a hybrid powertrain in a truck like makes 
huge amounts of sense. Even a purely electric for like the vast amount of usage that an actual truck gets uh, used for over particular distances, it can make sense depending on what you're what you're shooting for. Anyway, Ford. You guys think? Wait, uh, go ahead. Nick. Uh, okay, I, I I got some. I got something. I got some real-time consumer research. So I have with me right now a truck owner. <clears throat> uh, Mike, what do you what do you think about the concept of uh, an electric truck? <laughs> well, you know, I, I I think that electric trucks are are for faggots, and unless you're a you know a Zionist faggot, you shouldn't be driving a truck. Jeez, oh, <laughs> electric truck. That's a dichotomy there. This is an on-the-ground report. We've never had anything like this. What do you this think the about first. the Ford Lightning? Wait. Ford Lightning? Hold on one second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta give him the mic. <laughs> sure, hold on. Ford Lightning? Wait, we, we gotta know about the Ford Lightning. Hold on. Specifically, Mike, uh, what the Ford Lightning in, in particular, what do you think about it? Well, you know... All this electric bullshit, all these progressive liberals and Zionists, <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to achieve in this world. Everything worked just fine before them. The Ford Lightning, let me just say that's a truck for pussies. Tough but fair. There you go, folks. <laughs> Thank you. Nick Mason, Channel 4 News. Back to you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, so someone brought up Prop 13 earlier. Who was it? That was, was Hank. Hank. That was me. All was about actually, California micropolitics. Yeah, I love California yeah, micropolitics. Um, so it was actually brought to my attention the other day. I, th I think I'm going to invest in a little bit in, in a book or two. Um, there's a great historian of California, Ken Starr is his name. Uh, I was reading a Michael Anton article, and he brought him up. Um, Wasn't that the the one involved in the rape case under Clinton? I think uh, I think it's the same guy. I might have that name wrong. Hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's uh, Kevin Star, Kevin Star. Yeah, not Kevin Star. Yeah, Kevin Star. Anyways, so uh, I think I've actually read excerpts of his books before, just over time. Um, but I, I, you know, California micropolitics, especially the water politics, I've always found fascinating. This is a fantastic series of books. Uh, one of which we've done a show on, which is Colossus: The History of the Hoover Dam. There's another one called Cadillac Desert. Great book covers a lot of this, mm. um, but uh, and that's mostly you know the the, the water politics in Southern California. But uh, there's there's some stuff on the state of Jefferson, which we might do a show on, or I'd maybe do a show on in the future that I've always you know read up Independence on. Independence now, yeah, found interesting. You know the northern uh, northern corridor of uh, you know Anglo-Saxon California, and there's a there's some history to prop. 13 that I was actually looking up the other day because I was curious every few years there's this uh, there's this tact of uh, of well prop 13 is just so racist 
It's just so offensive. <laughs> it's just it. It we need restorative they're, justice. They're not wrong. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that if you look for you know uh, use your favorite search engine, uh, they all deliver similar results. Index. Have, yeah, I would recommend the show brought to you by Index. Yeah. Yeah, I um, actually unironically used Yandex recently for uh, yeah, some no, COVID I research. I, do, I have a yeah, Yandex T-shirt. If I ever it was have really to do, hard to get. They did not want to give it to me. If I ever have to do like real research, especially on a person, uh, a modern person, let's say, uh, Yandex comes in far more handy. There's a lot less pruned results, let's say. Because people can petition Google or use their connections at Google to get things unindexed. So um, it is useful for things like yeah, that. Even DuckDuckGo is advertising on NPR now, which I thought was Duck, a Duck, Go massive is, is red flag. It, it, is, it is unusably bad. It, like, yeah, just, their, their search engine is just Bing. Like that's who powers their search results. They, they basically sublicense Bing. So that makes sense. anyways, if you go to your favorite search engine and you want to know just how racist is Prop 13, just how racist is it? Well, you'll get dozens of results. I'm talking dozens every year now. And it was it was coming in heavy last year, especially after uh, St. Floyd got iced. You know, it, it, we had a lot of articles, a lot of a lot of journals. Best black man to ever live. Yes, we had a There's lot of journalists. No better black than Saint Floyd. Who a lot of journalists wanted you to know. By the way, not only did George Floyd get iced, but Prop Thirteen, folks. You know, we got to talk about Prop Thirteen. We got to talk about restorative justice in the property market. George Floyd's problem was he's paid too many property taxes. <laughs> or not enough or something. Property taxes are what killed him. So I was I was looking into the Well George George Floyd he George Floyd would have been alive if Bashir al-Assad was already assassinated. <laughs> I think the viewer understands this. George Floyd would have been alive. This is Zog logic. Floyd is uh, publicly called for Bashar al-Assad's death because... So I was curious about Prop 13. Actually, ironically, the other day, and I looked into it a bit because I had, I think I'd learned about this a you know, while back, but I'd just forgotten sort of the drama behind it. But... One of the interesting things, if you look into it, it was basically, you know, the, the architecture of this man named uh, Howard Jarvis, if I remember correctly. And this this is basically late 70s California. So you have to take your mind back to late 70s California in the world that Howard Jarvis had lived in since the late, late 50s, early 60s. And it was interesting because in, in – 70s California there. Well, in the late in the late 50s and early 60s, you had the reign of um, Pat Brown. You had the reign of sort of the 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 post uh, New Deal Democratic Party, uh, who you know was working closely with uh, sort of the general um, you know humdrum Republicans of of various regions of California. And it was a golden state. It had you know remarkable infrastructure development. It did have high taxes as it does today, um, but those taxes were actually utilized pretty effectively. It had a fantastic public education system. Um, 
And one of the interesting things about this 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 man was uh, Mr. Jarvis was that when he initially kind of started touting the uh, the Prop 13, the cap on taxes and some other tax revolt sort of rhetoric, um, nobody took him seriously. He was kind of just seen almost like a Ron Paul figure, but even less important, uh, just the local curmudgeon. And he was constantly pushing this line about, you know, we need to cap property taxes, we need to limit taxes in the state of California. Well, when you fast forward to the late 70s, this is post-Watts riot. This is post several other riots across the state. This is uh, post-1960s and all the drama that unfolded in the Bay Area and parts of Northern California and San Francisco. And, you know, late 70s California is looking kind of like a dump. It's It's got a lot of problems. Not a lot of people want to live there. Um, and the state is increasing taxes constantly and no one is seeing where it goes it sounds very familiar to uh to the state today and proper in, in the, like it was the 1978 election and uh you know jarvis was able to basically do a, a petition to get this thing on the ballot and the mood was so bad in california at the time as it is today that he i think tripled or, or quintupled i can't remember what it was he got, you know, orders of magnitude higher than what was required to get this on the ballot in 1978, which is pretty remarkable. It's pretty internet this is when you're using word of mouth, local committees, television and radio to distribute your message. Um, and it was a really simplistic law. I think it was like 10 sentences or something like that. And, and it was effectively, you know, you're going to take the, the property tax at what, what, what is it like one percent of the initial price or something to that effect and then you limit it to two percent a year unless the property changes hands or something like that that's basically the the general gist of the law well the irony is that whenever you look into this today and you see you know all the articles about just how racist we have to talk about how racist prop 13 is the like the, the last stand of the California Republican Party and its various tentacles, uh, which are all you know rapidly atrophying, um, is to say that actually, actually, Prop 13, Prop 13 is anti-racist. Prop 13 helps minority homeowners not pay taxes and stay in their homes longer, and in fact, this is the best thing we've ever done for the minorities of. California. It's a very weird sort of dynamic surrounding, you know, the, the political dynamic surrounding something as interstitial as uh, proper, you know, cap on property taxes. But now it's sort of coming to a head because I, you know, I think effectively the state is hankering for money, you know, pay down uh, unfunded liabilities, pension schemes, uh, the bailout of uh, PG&E. All these other sorts of problems, and uh, this is a common tactic. This, and this, you see this same tactic, by the way. We were talking about this earlier with the infrastructure package too, where if there's some kind of macroeconomic goal you want to accomplish, if you factor in this um, charge of racial justice to achieve that goal, 
then you very well might garner enough, you know, sort of uh, half-assed organic local support to make something happen. Um, and so in the case of Prop 13, in order to deal with the homeless issue, which has been created by the government of California, um, we need to remediate Prop 13 so we have the funds necessary to tackle homelessness in the state. It's a very interesting phenomena wherein you basically, you know, allow hundreds of thousands of crazy people to harass your residents and hold them hostage uh, and basically tell them, if you just stop with your property tax cap, we will take care of this for you. But you have to give us that money first. Spoiler, they will not. Yeah, spoiler. (laughs) None of that is going to happen. Um, they've been bitching about Prop 13. The irony is you can find articles from 1990, 1995, 2002, you know, complaining about the racist nature of Prop 13, the, the unfair nature of Prop 13. Uh, realistically, it's just never going to go away. Uh, well, it, no, particularly it, because they were they were smart enough. There's one particular provision where uh, you can actually inherit property without adjusting the property tax basis so you have literally multi-generational heirs now of you know like landed literal landed aristocracy owning oceanfront property in malibu who are still paying you know five hundred dollars a year in property taxes because by God, that's 1% of the value in 1968. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that this will probably never go away for the simple sense that many of those districts on a, on a congressional level and a state assembly level um, lean heavily Democratic. And one argument you can make is that they want it to stay in place. Because the funds that don't go into state coffers can be you know, donated to political campaigns and donated to re-election campaigns and donated to NGOs that are trying to achieve some either local or mission somewhere. So ultimately, it's sort of a, a bargain by which you know the, the, the oligarchs of California – and there are plenty of people who use Prop 13 that are just old-timers – they're just like normal middle class people from the 70s and 80s. They're not like, you know, running the op. They're, they're, they're not into that sort of thing. But I think that part of why it sticks around is for the actual oligarchs of California who exploit it as well. And their mission appears to be if, if that money, if you make sure that that money does not go into state coffers, we will give you a portion of it to do with what you please from a political standpoint. So in a way, this is actually, you know, the oligarchy of California is able to funnel money into national political endeavors uh, for some horrific purpose, as long as they don't have to give that money to the state of California to deal with problems that the state of California, the government of California often causes in the first place. So it's a very sort of high-low phenomenon where the low and the high are sort of working together to, squeeze the middle, but also you know, ensure that the high never really has to uh, 
uh, come down to the low. Yeah, no shit. So. Cal- California itself is a product of a high-low phenomenon. That's where it ended up. It's that type of size California better than any other thing. It's what it is. It's what it's become, I think. I don't think it was always that way. I mean, in the 50s, it was kind of a, a golden state, literally, where people were, you know, buying homes for $20,000 and uh, driving to work for 10 minutes. And then they'd get to the office, get paid, and then they'd come back to a, a nice family. I think those days are gone, obviously, but uh, it, it was, for a brief period, something that I think was very middle class. Well, it's the nature of the big city power centers in California. I mean, like, you can go back to, if you watch the Jew, Roman Polanski, Jew rapist, Roman Polanski's film, Chinatown, and that was made in, I think, like, 1979. Like, California water politics have always been that consortium of, I don't know, financiers and gangsters. But, I mean, it's a big fucking place. A lot of people live there or live there. I mean, white people are being run out day by day, but... There's I mean, there's a lot of ways to. If you look want to understand it. corruption, spend two decades there. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to look at the state. I I've always told people that that northern corridor that you know really is Jefferson, along with some of the inland counties and some of the coastal counties that aren't always thought of as Jefferson. That's basically you know, uh, I like to think of that as Anglo-Saxon California. <laughs> if you're ever there, um, you're. I have, you're I've, I have deep lore to relate about that, but I there, won't. There's basically. I will recommend if anyone is interested in literature, read uh, Thomas Pynchon's Vineland if you want to feel for something that no longer really exists, or at least exists in vestigial fragments. But it's it's not one place, and I think a lot of people familiar with the place homogenize California. At the very least, it's at least two separate places. And it, in reality, is uh, quite a few more. Yeah, it's, it's it's very curious in that sense, especially now. And I think it, the, the elements of the division were always there, but um, it, it's gotten remarkably worse. I, I, there was an interesting paper on JSTOR uh, a while back, and it, it talked about the, the three, it, it kind of dubbed it the three Anglo migrations. I think it literally used the word Anglo uh, to California. And the whole purpose of the paper was to basically establish, you know, the this this unconventional history of the state, in that it is actually a state that was founded, uh, not not completely founded, but definitely developed and made into its own identity by waves of, you know, sort of Anglo migrants from the East Coast. It was or, the most tragic collapse of an Aryan civilization since 1945. Can <laughs> confirm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it was basically comprised of people who were fleeing the insanity of of the East Coast, and there was there was a time in like the 30s when uh, Los Angeles had a higher proportion of a Protestant population than the city of Boston did. It, it was it was clearly a a you know wasp state, and you can see elements of that in the uh, the wasp kingdom of Orange County, which has been deeply uh um, i don't know orientalized for sure but you can definitely well still there's see the- a phenomenon in california where the space that aryans made 
are filled by Asiatics who also value a certain degree of standards, but at the same time can't create them. I will also add in the defense of the long lost state of California that it was at the frontiers of of science in the world. I mean, you talk about talk about anything we've talked about on the program many times. I mean, for, yeah, like like a generous whatever. Like you you looked you looked west, young man. Well, a lot of the initial Silicon Valley guys, a lot of the biomedical engineering, a lot of the hospital chains, all the medical research, the university uh, leadership, the the governors, many times over, were all just it's just wasps who like are just out there kind of doing their own thing where property costs are cheap and they were um, now it's sort of been subsumed into this uh, sort of nexus of like bizarre ethnic politics and uh, uh, you know sort of various schemes going on from political to economic to almost mafia-esque by the by the upper class many of whom are not have no ties to the original like you know Californian founding stock if you will I, I think a good example Mo- of that yeah, is the, the uh, cancer settled in LA. the jet propulsion laboratory. Uh, which I think uh, is, yeah, is tied to Caltech, one of the most elite uh, technical colleges in the world. I think it's ahead of MIT, frankly, uh, in terms of just the the sheer caliber of uh, intellects going there. I've known a couple, and they're they're really smart. Um, but there was a there was a kerfuffle maybe four or five years ago. I remember Stefan Molyneux actually commenting on this when he was still on YouTube. But uh, JPL is is where they they do a lot of the um, the planetary exploration probes. Now they they run them remotely and they they launch uh, they design the rockets and and all the uh, the rovers that go on Mars and things like that. And there was a guy who uh, who had like a shirt or something that had uh, like a, a woman in a bikini on it, and uh, there was a picture of him like celebrating when they got there. Uh, their robot on Mars and uh, all the SJWs immediately uh, started trying to attack him because of course they probably weigh about three or four times uh, the, uh, the woman displayed on his shirt. And so the jealousy of course is masked by their political BMI supremacy. Exactly. And, uh, and it turned out that actually some women in uh, the JPL like gave that to him or something. But um there's also these uh, these funny memes where there's like these like pan pictures, like panoramic pictures of like the the JPL control room. Where, I mean, if you compare it obviously to the Apollo program, where all these like uh, straight edge guys, you know, with buzz cuts and white collared uh, uh, shirts are are running everything. You smash cut to 2015, 16. and you've got uh, people with like purple hair, nose rings, and the caption is always like, you know, we're never going to the moon again. Uh, and this is kind of, I think, a good microcosm of California. We're never going to the moon again because the proportion of, you know, uh, heroic Anglo-Saxon blood has dropped immensely. That was why we went to the moon. It wasn't magic, folks. It was the uh, the unparalleled history of uh, families tracing back to 7th century Mercia. That's the reason we actually went anywhere. I'm, I'm just going to well, be that honest. And, uh, 
Well, know, and the moon was yeah. actual yeah. fucking card carrying National Socialist Engineering staff. Yeah. Boom. I mean, it, it, you, the moon turns out you run out of Nazis, you never go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, no shit. One race, the what Saxon you know? race, you might say. The space race. Yeah, and now it's like the only conquest left for Aryan is the things that they had conquered already 100 and 200 and 300 and fucking 1,000 years before. Weird how that works. Hey, uh, you guys want a movie review? Sure. Desperately. <laughs> Coming from an unlikely source, perhaps. We, I don't know. We all know that wild card. The, uh, yeah. Let's De- bring it in. Movie depends movie. on how much Wait, my, Adam, better stuff this. you want. You What's... mentioned some movie. Okay, so we were doing yeah. this pre-show. Adam talked about some movie, and none of us had seen it. No, we didn't know what he was talking about. Well, well, so, like, uh, well, like the, the Boy Adam, Scout what, that I what, am, I wrote down my homework assignment. Apparently, everybody else wasn't even paying attention to the teacher. Yeah. But uh, Adam's Adam's ace, ace, <laughs> top tier. No so joke. I regret to admit that I had never seen this before, but I was uh, grateful to know uh, some cultured co-hosts. Tell me, it's not buck breaking. I no, uh, I I just learned what that is vaguely, but no, uh, no, I watched Highlander. Uh, somebody on the chat said uh, we should do a show on that. Oh my god! Oh shit! What did you think, is, Adam? Wait, Adam, you're you're, you're admitting that you had never watched Highlander before? No, I I had never seen hey, it. Hey, Adam, what did you think? Uh, I give it a thumbs up. Um, the beginning was weird because they're in like a wrestling match, but it it sort of makes sense once you see the rest of the film. Uh, it bombed at the box office, which uh, I guess is a little surprising, but there were some interesting themes. I, I took some notes. Uh, the guy who did uh, Raiden in Mortal Kombat was the main character, and then Sean Connery shows up randomly as like a Egyptian come Spaniard, which r- they really had to try hard in the uh, the makeup department to pull that one off, but yeah, he's also Scottish, like the uh, main character, so... I don't know, the audience is supposed to just meld these together. But yeah, no, the plot is this guy, he can't die. He's born somehow of mortals in the 1500s, 1700s, something like that, uh, in Scotland. And he, um, his job is to uh, become the only one standing, I guess, of the other immortals who try to kill him, uh, or at least one guy does. And... Uh, It explores themes, obviously, of immortality, uh, loneliness, alienation, uh, and it's got some pretty good cinematography, and it's a little campy at times, but I thought it was was pretty cool. Um, Pretty good movie, yeah. He also is uh, in modern-day New York, and so they they smash back and forth. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, uh, No. I, I was curious. I, I'm surprised you hadn't seen it. I mean, that's no. I'd seen the TV show, sort of, before. as a kid. Yeah, that's it, it though. Min, mini, well, okay. Well, that's where I was going with this. The TV show, I think, is better. I, I'm a, like the movie yeah, is fine, probably. But I love yeah. the Highlander TV show. Was that UPN? Uh, in or... fact, oh, I don't remember where it aired, but uh, it was like the sci-fi I, I gotta, channel. Uh, I, got a I don't know, like UPN or some shitty network. Um, like we saw that the 
uh, was the one who really turned me on to the, the TV show. And the TV show, like, there's a lot of camp. There's a lot of very dated stuff. But there's single episodes in that that are as based as you can get on TV. And it's it's incredible. Uh, the, sh- the movie gets a lot of attention. But anyone who really wants, you know, I mean, you got, I don't, I don't know how many episodes it ran for, probably 80 or 90. Uh, <laughs> that's where it's at. Uh, the sequel to the film kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not great. But the, the show, yeah, there's a few episodes that are belong to a time that is past and should remain there. There's so many fucking gems there. Like it's amazing. If you have the time and you wanna you wanna dig through that, like I, I think the show was was tops. Tops. Card cool. recommend. Well, not remembering much of the show and just recently seeing the movie, I'm I'm gonna assume they have the basic underlying premise, like they're you know, immortal guys that have these rivals that uh, they have to cut their heads off. Yeah, of. they bring in. I, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. And the and it has like uh, Joan Jett shows up. Uh, <laughs> they have a lot of like interesting cameos. There's I an explanation for why he has the katana in it. That's a really good episode. What was that? Hank? Did, they of, did they have a bunch of like Xena warrior princess crossovers? Uh, it's. Hercules and Xena did yeah, that. I mean, but he, yeah, he was super based, dude. He like okay, he he alternatively like he lived like in an antique store because he's ancient, and then also like lived on a boat on the scene, and he he just like I I, I can say nothing but it it was based. <laughs> and if you haven't experienced it and you're watching like depraved Jewish television, you should stop and just watch Highlander instead. That's what I have to say about it. Well, one of the interesting thing about Highlander, uh, and I think that I was the one who brought it up to you because we were chatting about uh, sort of the 1980s uh, fantasy scene. So in the 1980s, uh, there was just an effervescence of amazing fantasy movies that have all lived on uh and it's to the point where hollywood keeps attempting to redo them for some reason um highlander conan excalibur dragon slayer willow legend uh all these films which are just fantastic uh they were really none of them did well if i remember correctly like most of them were box office flops or no they uh, didn't do well yeah and, and the and, best of what you named was excalibur which is the finest oh, film ever. absolutely made. wonderful but film yeah and, and these all these films have these similar themes in common one of the one of the most remarkable aspects of, of when you watch these films especially now First of all, was the last time when you could unabashedly do a period piece or just a world of fantasy, uh, whether it was uh, a prehistoric, uh, fantastical world, a medieval world, uh, or a mix of ancient and modern, uh, in the case of Conan, Excalibur, and uh, and uh, and Highlander. Hyperborea. You could do these with literally all white casts. Secondly, you could actually yes. you could actually yes. touch on real storytelling themes in movies that were intended for like wide audience consumption. 
so there was this kind of magic moment where you could have, I think, what you would describe as like a, a like a, a broad spectrum appeal movie. It's not an art house film, but it still is trying to do something real. Excalibur is a real artistic film, but it was also it's, meant it's, for Excalibur is borderline art, art house. Yeah, yeah, but Excalibur was also still a wide release, and you know, did it still has lived on. And same with Conan and, and Highlander. I think Willow definitely touches on this, but the interesting thing now, looking back on it, number one, those definitely helped set the stage for, I think, uh, the, the very last, um, uh, you know, all white fantasy world cast we're ever going to see, which is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But more importantly, I yes, think that they, they absolutely 100% correct. They they did they they think opened up um, a an element of imagination and that you could tell a modern story or you could tell a modern reimagining of a story whether it was Arthurian legend or the tales of the Mesolithic era in in sort of the the old world um, you could do that with an approach to uh, actually making something serviceable to normal people and you could cast normal people in it and actually do something fun with it. You can also touch on just uh, important elements of ancient history and mythology that people found interesting. And especially in light of, you know, everything we've learned about real prehistory and uh, genetics and archaeology in the last 40 odd years since many of these films came out, the irony is that the world of the prehistoric era was far more like Conan and far more like Highlander than we, we ever imagined in the 1980s. We never we ever thought it was going to be like that. There's literally Not one of the, the, the funniest things. Well, domesticated people are looking back on the times of a warrior golden age and they become confused. And this is what they fear. This is the reason why, if you look on your like Jewish uh, subscription services, anytime anything broaches this, anytime anything broaches prehistory or mythology, uh, you're going to see like a colored face popping out at you. Like that—that—that's exactly what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the myth because they know that's exactly what will come for them if it animated, if reanimated the Aryan. And Highlander definitely combined like. The reason why Highlander is the most in, one of the more interesting is that it, it it's the whole plot of the film is what if we combine the the tales of mythology, uh, ancient prehistory, mythology, and um, the modern world and every historical era in between into one film, and what if we say that actually there is a story that is still ongoing, that unites all eras of mankind, and it's this ancient warfare well, between... Well, and the, the subtext to Highlanders... Bing. Like, the, sub, the whole subtext to Highlander is uh, amidst the modern world, there is some kind of, like, ancient Aryan struggle that, like, Nobody even understands man. And, you know, there's, there's a little bit of cheese to it, but it's so charming in its way. And it's it's relatable, I think, to anybody who, I don't know, isn't a worthless nigger. 
Well, you know that the name of the main villain in Highlander is the Kurgan, is just Kurgan. So you're you're basically like <laughs> yes, you're, you're yes, led to yes. believe this is like. Isn't there like a Kyrgyzstan somewhere? No, the Kurgan Kurgans are a form of ancient step burial that our ancestors definitely practiced. Kyrgyzstan's fake. You know, definitely practiced four five thousand years ago mm-hmm. on the edge of the step, and many and some of our cousins would have continued to do so uh, for a, a very long time. And what they're trying to, when they're calling this villain, the Kurgan, and he's, you know, dressed in this sort of, uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, late Mesolithic armor and sort of bone uh, sets. And with this, you know, huge sword and he, he's like uh, riding around on a horse. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to say that this is, this is a, like this ancient, literal ancient hyperborean warlord that is a member of this uh, sort of genetic anomaly that's been going around conquering the world for hundreds of years thousands of years and there's others like him and you know the the main his main rival is a an ancient celtic warlord (laughs) who's you know kind of like a a a nomad himself who's kind of bouncing around the world and live trying to live in in some solitude he's carrying a, a midi or you know like a, an ancient japanese sword and it's it's uh it's honestly awesome the, you could not and you, you have, not you have to watch that. the series to see the explanation for that no the the, the series the katana, sucks. that is all, all that stuff sucks no, no it doesn't fuck no 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 it does not fucking suck <laughs> It, is, it it absolutely does not fucking suck. This is like Stargate. This Hard is like disagree, when you try and dude. tell me that the Stargate series. <laughs> <laughs> Star- Stargate. Because the union of the, the Aryan past, the Hyperborean future, from <laughs> outer space, go through the pyramids. Swear to God, man. <laughs> you know, if you want to watch <laughs> television, you should watch for a wild card. I'm gonna cast a wild card. If Highlander appealed to you, go and uh, find your most uh, legitimate source for Linux ISOs <laughs> and lose uh, the cremaster cycle. <laughs> it's uh, it's me. <laughs> Is that Ubuntu? What? <laughs> the Icelandic fellow. I know he's it's it's good. It's a highly. It's a very 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 arty uh, thing. Uh, the uh, the master, if you're curious, is uh, not a creature master. That's a little bit more Conan the Barbarian uh, than uh, he chooses to get. The master is the uh, I believe it's the muscle that ascends your testes. But anyway, it's good and it has several uh, callbacks to uh, Irish. And a sort of imagined ye old uh, Hyperborean, for lack of a better word, uh, mythology. Very cool visuals, very esoteric. Just enjoy it, let it wash over you. Drop a link in the show notes. For the younger Zoomers who are listening, if you like those uh, really cool little Hyperborea vids that uh, are popular on Twitter and elsewhere, you should definitely watch uh, Highlander and Excalibur. Willow too. Uh, I liked Willow. I think is another good one. Yeah, I even like Willow. 
because those uh, those I, movies. I, I thought it was the, good. It was the, the visual. The, the visuals. ginger is he Jewish though? Who the, I don't the, know. The ginger Robert Howard. That's right. Wait, no, 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 no. not Robert E. Howard who made Conan. Uh, Ron Ron Howard, right? That's Ron Howard. Jew. I don't he, think he's he Jewish. Did, uh, a lot. No, so probably not. Uh, usually, I mean, to find a ginger Jew is like finding a you know uh, insert metaphor, but. Uh, yeah, hard recommend everything. Huh? Yeah, right. Hard recommend. Uh, Highlander, though, the beauty of it is, like, everybody's grubbing after money and whining about a bunch of bullshit, but, like, actual men are solving their problems by single combat. I mean, it's charming. Come on. Come on. Very charming. But did, what did you think of the... Because um, I, I don't remember the show really well, but I think the movie really captured the alienation No one remembers the really show well. Really well. And uh, I think, you know, it's the ultimate question. Would you want to live forever? Um, I personally wouldn't. Absolutely. No, I mean, this is this is one of the things that, like, the, uh, you know, I, I give these guys a lot of shit. Uh, it's like ex-libertarians and ex-rationalists. Like, you know, the uh, the converts are the most uh, vicious towards their uh, preceding ideology or whatever. But there were a lot of influential aspects there. And one of them is that, like, it, it's fucking terrible to, to, like, actually die, to cease to exist. If you have any sort of uh, ongoing faculties of reason or ability uh, going forward, like the the idea that it's like, oh, it's terrible to live forever. I mean, this is this is a pure cope. This is a rationalization of the fact that you are doomed to die and grow old and increasingly decrepit over no. the course of ideally 115 years or so. I don't so. think that's the only like, of course reason. It's possible that like, people no, are like, genuinely ask, upset ask about that. Anyone but. who, like, you know... There are plenty of people who anyone, commit suicide. Immortality like, is exactly years old. And like, like, would you like to be able to play? It's with exactly your and literally the holy grail. I know, like, but I'm asking: is that, is that the correct? Because nobody's ever accomplished it. So, do we really know if that's preferable? I mean, imagine this: like, if you yes. could live however long you we, wanted, we, I think we, we'd all agree. We strive for good. life. Yeah, but what if you couldn't die? What if you? I mean. Nick, you and I were talking about this episode where Q literally tries to kill himself. Uh, one of the Qs on uh, Star Trek, right? Oh, oh that's such and, a good episode. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, but it, it's a classic yeah. concept. I mean, it's sort of academic, too, because, again, nobody's ever I mean, even yeah, going to be able to do this. But it's still, it's like, I mean, if, can, if I could choose life or like, death, that's fine. But if I can't, if I'm locked into life and it's a miserable life, that doesn't seem very nice, you know? Then there's a reason people take their own life at a certain point. That's all I'm saying. Well, in the context man. of Highlander, they're, they're living for the glorious years of Aryan history. I, I don't know, like, however this shit shakes out. Uh, you could have a very good reason for wanting to jettison yourself into the sun and fucking immolate. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, are we going to be watching the earth fall like, in the void of eternal darkness? Then, yeah, maybe you have very good reason to die. Like, but reason to die. as long as there's possibility for the future, you sure. have life. Sure, sure. I, I agree. As long as you got a choice, that's all I want. I'm pro-choice, guys. 
said, this is the only Nietzsche quote that I can recall off the top of my head that's relevant. He found the idea of suicide to be a tremendous comfort. <laughs> it's like, huh. I quote that a lot. I quote that a lot. <laughs> no joke. I, By the way, I, I think uh, that we have, that comes uh, to me a lot. Extremely relevantly, I think that we have not introduced the uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, everybody press F for John McAfee. Uh-huh. We we did last time. Yeah. Uh, oh, you were so. absent, Hank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Hank. We did a eulogy for John. We already did that. He well, this showed is why up. we do these. This is why we do after dark. It's all in real time. Hank just found out about this. Apparently, he didn't listen to the last episode. It's fine. It's fine. Ooh. I didn't either. <laughs> but I never listened on to after we record that. Yeah. Unless someone complains and says yeah. they did something wrong, then I'll listen. Well, they complained. People complained that we talked about it, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> oh, the dogs are barking. Yeah. <laughs> what do they think about immortality? Well, we should ask Hank, what do you think happened to McAfee? Because we were kind of speculating, you know, what, I don't what think this might know. be tied. We're just guessing. But yeah, what do you think? It's, well, okay, so the immediate thing that comes to mind is that he uh, perhaps knew something or was supposed to know something via his social encounters in the Caribbean, his projects in the Caribbean. It's also, I think, possible that uh but like okay so if julian assange was found dead in a jail cell tomorrow with like video proof of him putting a revolver to his temple i would still say julian assange did not kill himself because he had been harangued and harassed uh, for literally multiple decades uh, into that circumstance. And I think that it is completely plausible that McAfee uh, may have found himself looking forward to a similar situation, that political persecution that results in somebody taking the proximate act to end their own life does not count as a fucking suicide. That is a murder. So those are the two ways that I can look about it. But either way, I think that, you know, for those of you believe who believe that suicide is a mortal sin, uh, I do not believe that uh, McAfee finds himself in those circumstances right now. Well, it's interesting that when we had our first show with him, um, I think the topic of Julian Assange came up. And this was right after Julian Assange, uh, not long after Julian Assange had effectively been finally extradited to the United States. And he said something to the effect of, you you know that we're never going to hear from Julian ever again. Um, and which pretty much turned out to be true. Although I did see the other day that um, one of the lead witnesses in the trial uh, for the federal government yeah. has now admitted to fabricating evidence for the FBI, which is interesting. Uh, but it still holds true nonetheless. Uh, we probably will never hear from Julian ever again. And uh, I think that it's possible 
that uh, something similar was going on and that uh, once the clause were in and the extradition order was signed, who knows? Who was allowed to, to come into the room? Who was allowed to say or do what? We, we have no idea the process and chain of events that occurred after that extradition order was signed uh, in that, those few hours. Uh, and it's worth noting that um, uh, Mr. McAfee's wife has, has definitely called this whole thing into question. Uh, his own lawyer has said that uh, he did not appear suicidal. Uh, he himself has said many times that he did not appear suicidal. So you know, this this is very curious, and uh, uh, you know, a week later we still don't know what really happened. I find it fucking disgusting on a personal level that the same fucking people who are like, oh, you shouldn't publish mug shots of maybe they're underserved or whatever, they never neglect when they're quoting Mrs. McAfee who was very pleasant to us on air and has provided nothing but fucking respect to anyone who has ever interacted with her. They never neglect to quote her as Mrs. McAfee, a former prostitute. Like, these fucking people make me sick. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's very weird sort of moralism. I don't know what they're attempting to do other than... The hypocrisy knows exactly zero bounds. Yeah. And I don't really see anyone falling for it. You know, what's interesting, I noticed this um, a lot recently, and it wasn't just due to what happened to Mr. McAfee. Um, And I think it's definitely accelerated since the death of Epstein, uh, the, I should say the disappearance of Epstein. Um, yeah, I was just about to say. Is that generally, generally people, the general American public, now holds a belief that whenever anything high profile, anything happens like this to a high profile person, they automatically assume now there's a level of international intrigue and corruption and duplicity going on. And this is probably yet another person who knew too much. That to me is, is remarkable. And I think it's remarkable because it's a sign that uh, most people can now see through the veneer of, of what this all is. They finally kind of, made it to the end of the the hall of mirrors and they're now understanding that all of this stuff is very engineered all of this none of this is organic there's lots of ploys and schemes and you know real evil doing behind the scenes of a lot of this um, and people immediately assumed he didn't kill himself not just because he didn't not just because he said he wasn't going to but people now instinctually think there's something else going on here. This guy was too high profile. What, what happened? He, he evaded some taxes, and now the U.S. government was going to throw him in prison for the rest of his life? This seemed uh, extraordinary, and this seemed over the top. And the lengths at which they were going to uh, to locate and detain him, which he told us about, uh, were, were kind of troubling. And I think that now people get the impression that uh, this is just the norm and you're ruled over by, you know, sort of 
uh, you know, demented sociopaths that don't even care anymore that their that their methods and their actions are are now very public and people can understand what they're doing and just automatically assume there's level of corruption here. There has to be corrupt. There's no way he killed himself. If you go to the well, average of person, corruption. I mean the <laughs> the amount of taxes that the man can possibly have owed and the amount of ability to collect on those. It was clear that the intention was to make an example of him. And, you know, just as I said during the Edward Snowden, God damn it, Edward Snowden ordeal, you do not have a obligation to allow yourself to be made an example of. I think McAfee said that at one point he had paid over $50 million in taxes to the U S federal government and he was done. I mean, I certainly don't think he received that back in public services, but, uh, I think that just puts it in perspective. How much blood can you take from a stone? Here we are born to be kings with a
Hey! <laughs>